Good morning, everyone. To give this talk a title, it's called The Altruistic Instinct. Um, but let me begin with a poem, and it's by a 10th century Japanese poet, and I cited it in um, a book by um, Joan Halifax called Standing at the Edge. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. Um, metaphorically, you and I are the ruined house. The more you do this practice, the more permeable you become to life and everything that happens in life, the good, the bad, everything. Um, it's just an outcome that happens with sitting um, quietly you know, in an observant way that you just become porous to your experience. So I know it's often said that Zen practice is about becoming present, and that's true, but it needs another word added onto it to make it a bit clearer. It's about becoming present to everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. It needs that added statement onto it to give it a, a fuller kind of understanding rather than just some kind of technique about being present in the moment, being present to everything, everything that happens, everything that is. Um, this um, this uh, poem also reminds me of the, the Greek myth of Sharon. Probably a lot of you know of it. The Greek myth of Sharon, more more commonly known as the wounded healer, and Sharon, who was was someone who was um, hit by a, a poison arrow, and became very ill. And as through his own illness and being poisoned, he sought out di various different ways and studied different ways of how to be healed. Um, but along the journey, became a healer of other people, and it's not as though he was cured of the poison and then he healed other people. He was always wounded. He was a wounded healer. And um, that is the spirit in which, that's a great spirit in which to consider um, how we um, find this altruistic instinct in ourselves and how we express it in some way. We go back into the story of the Buddha. The Buddha is someone who recognize suffering in the world, takes himself away from it to meditate and observe for a long period of time, comes to an awakening, awakening and sort of um, frees himself from his own personal suffering. And he, he stayed there for two weeks, apparently, according to the story, under the Bodhi tree, just experiencing this freedom from suffering. And then he went, well, what am I going to do now? And if his experience was one of everything, the presence of everything, and how everything's interconnected, then even at a even at a place of logic, little let alone compassion, um, go okay. Well, I'm not suffering now. I identify with everything. Other people and other beings are suffering. So maybe I could do something. Maybe I could formulate a teaching so that other people could experience this freedom from suffering that I've experienced. 
And so he starts his, his lifetime of teaching. Um, but even in a, um, uh, a less dramatic way, um, perhaps in a way which is deep as that, where we really see through all kind of suffering, many people who come to Zen practice um, come and sit for maybe quite intensively for five years and uh, through that time, through doing sitting every day, being in a sangha, um, listening to teachings, doing session and so on, um, many, many people after five years of quite solid practice um, will be feeling much more peaceful in themselves and the suffering that, that, that uh, brought them along is no longer as acute as what it originally was. And at that point, a lot of people may, may drop out of um, Zen practice or maybe they just kind of dabble in it from there on in because their original motivation, which was suffering, is no longer so acute. They're not driving them like it was before. They haven't got a burr under the saddle like they had before. Um, and some people may, may um, drop out of formal Zen practice at that point because they feel much more emotionally regulated and so on than what they did. And then other people, um, like the Buddha, go, okay, well, I've, I may not be perfectly enlightened yet, but I'm not suffering like I did before. I'm actually quite peaceful. So what do I do now? And if my, my experience, my insight that I started to cultivate to some degree through all of this practice is that everything is interrelated and nothing is separate and everything is in a state of interbeing, then you, you, you get moved in various ways to go, well, how could I be of service in some way? How could, I, how could I reduce suffering in the world? And it doesn't necessarily mean being a nurse or a doctor or a psychologist or a teacher. It could be anything. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be um, trying to be of service within your own family. It doesn't really matter which form it takes. Um, but the, the practice instinctively um, brings you to this place if you practice it long enough. <clears throat> now, when we talk about altruism, um, there are a whole lot of traps to it because people can become altruistic through a religious ideal or a philosophical ideal or a sense of duty and often it's not very wise and it becomes what we refer to in psychology as codependency and enabling where people are giving and giving but not in a wise kind of way which actually doesn't help and may actually harm the person they're trying to help or harm themselves. So it's fraught with a lot of complexities. Um, but at its heart, um, a Buddhist view of human beings is that we are naturally um, altruistic and that, that insight is cultivated and that heart of compassion is cultivated just naturally. Now one well-known koan, which you may have heard of me talk about before, is a koan about the Bodhisattva of compassion. 
And the story goes, one teacher asked another Zen teacher, what does the Bodhisattva of compassion, that's Avalokiteshvara, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion do with so many hands and eyes? If you've seen that, that statue, all these eyes, all these hands, the eyes see everywhere and the hands are willing to help wherever they can. Mm -hmm. And the other teacher said, it's like someone reaching for a pillow at night. It's something, in other words, you just do unconsciously. Right? It's not done out of duty, it's not done out of some kind of ideal. It's just done instinctively, like reaching for a pillow in the night. It's unconscious, you don't even know that you're doing it. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the instinct, that's the, that's, the, um, that's the intuitive kind of experience through which true compassion arises. It's not looking for a reward, it's not trying to eliminate guilt, uh, it's not trying to be a good person, it's just an instinct like the instinct of eating when you're hungry, just something that you would do. But then, to go on with the koan, um, it's like someone reaching for a pillow at night. The other teacher said, I understand. And then teacher two says, what do you understand? The first person says, all over the body, hands and eyes. And the other teacher said, You've only got 80% of it. Mm -hmm. And one teacher says, what about you then? Throughout the body, hands and eyes. Throughout the body, hands and eyes. So in other words, the body sat from compassion is all eyes and all hands. Right? There's nothing, it's not like part of me is doing this and part of me doing this. It's like the whole 100% being is involved in that compassionate action because there's no thought behind it, you know, and no reward behind it. So it's very whole and, and complete in its action. Now, some of the ways that can guide us into um, service, um, if I could use that word, is um, One way of looking, three ways of looking at how altruism can work is we could do it by what we refer to as helping and helping others. But when we, what the word helping implies is that someone is weak and somehow we're stronger and we're going to help them because they're weaker. Right? And then another form of it might be um, fixing. But if we're going to fix something, the metaphor implies that something is broken. Right? But when we consider service, um, what service implies is that we're seeing life as a whole. So we're not coming from the place that I'm strong and someone's weak, or it's broken and I'm going to fix it, which is kind of much more, more self in it. But if there's just a sense of bringing, taking in the whole, the whole of me and the whole of what is in circumstances, then something has a chance to come forward, which is natural and an appropriate response to that. Um, also in um, uh, Bernie Glassman Roshi, is a um, Zen teacher, well-known Zen teacher in New York. I met him once or twice when I did session in um, Los Angeles, a very sort of um, dynamic kind of person. And he's always been restless about um, uh, 
engaged scene in the world and he developed a, an organisation called the, um, the Zen Peacemakers Order and it has three tenets to it which are really good in, in guiding us into altruistic action. First one is not knowing, second is bearing witness and the third is compassionate action. Now I think they're wonderful tenants because not knowing is, is, is quite different from, yeah, I know how to fix this, I know how to help this, I've got this program, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll fit you into the program and we'll help you, I know what to do. It's not coming from that position at all. It's like, I don't know what's required. You haven't actually got any kind of conceptual construction about what is required. I actually don't know. So I'll sit in that place. Right? And then bearing witness is not willing to shirk away from seeing something unpleasant or seeing something suffering or some being suffering. It's like, I'm not going to ignore it. If I'm going to take in everything in the moment, everything that's presented to me in life, then I can't ignore these unpleasant aspects of it. And even even though it makes me squirm and I don't feel comfortable in it, my commitment is to see it for what it is. Right? That's the second one. And um, compassionate action is not just about having empathy, like feeling someone else's pain, but then it moves you to want to do something constructive that reduces that suffering or pain in some way. So they're very, they're very good. They're very good tenants. Mm-hmm. Not knowing, bearing witness and compassionate action and if I could speak like personally being in a helping profession and I've worked out I've been doing it for about 40 years I I still have like when new people come along um, I notice there's a there's a slight it's not an overwhelming feeling but there's a slight anxiety within me of I don't know what to do Like, I've done it for 40 years, but it's kind of like, I don't know if I can help these people. I actually don't know what to do. And so, but as you, perhaps what happens as you mature in a profession like this is you're able to just dwell in the not knowing and you just ask questions and you listen and you get a kind of feel of what's there. And yes, you've got experience that you draw upon, but it's almost like, no, it's not like I've got the solution, I'm going to give it to you. It's more like, you and your clients co-create it together. So that's why you don't know what's going to emerge, you know. And in any profession, um, not just my own, if you just got some single view about what works and you try to apply it to everyone, that's not what will work. You've got to adapt. That's what wisdom is, you know. It's adapting to each circumstance as it arises rather than having a, a fixed, you know, view of things. And within that, some people have, we've heard of this term um, tough love, you know, which is the opposite of soft love. And some people um, adhere to a view, or you just go have to go in with tough love all the time, you know, to deal with family problems or issues. And some people are very soft in their approach. And, um, but the thing is, if you have an idea a fixed idea, or a tough love is the way all the time, then it's not necessarily appropriate. 
Nada is soft love. You know, it's like what's what's required in each situation. That comes from a place of not knowing, rather than you knowing. You know what should happen. But to give you an example of tough love, um, and how that can be a form of compassion too. Once I knew a a grandmother who had a an adult daughter. The adult daughter was about forty. And she had a very young child, about five years old. And the adult daughter was a multiple drug user. And her child was, seemed to me, from what was described to me, was being quite seriously neglected. And she'd been in contact with other health professionals. She wasn't my client, but asked the grandmother, hasn't anyone reported it? Because you're supposed to. And I said, and I started to get a bit worried about it and I thought, you know, actually, maybe I might have to report it, even though I'm hearing it third hand. And after a bit of reflection, the grandmother said, well, don't you worry about Jeff, because I'm going to. Mm -hmm. And even though she loved her daughter, she could see that taking that more drastic action, it was a tough love um, intervention in, in this regard, was a compassionate thing to do. Now, to do that in all circumstances, right? Sometimes maybe the best thing someone needs to you know who you're in contact with is a hug, you know, soft love. Mm -hmm. But the knowing mind knows what's right all the time and will, will, in a fixed kind of way, impose its knowing on helping. And then it's not like shifting a pillow in the night. It's quite something else that's coming from up here. Um, if we come back to sazen and sitting, which is the main activity or non-activity <laughs> today, um, that is the place, if we come back to the basics of that, that is the place from where not knowing, bearing witness, compassionate action comes from, right? Because we sit in this um, non-conceptual place and become comfortable in it rather than running ideas through our, and constructions through our mind. And what we do too is that we become embodied. And, and if we become embodied here and we sit in that place of not knowing and we're in the experience of embodiment, then when we meet different circumstances in our life, um, our body will tell us what to do. Right? That, that altruistic instinct comes out of the visceral body experience. Right? So if you're, if you're feeling, if you listen to your body when you're presented with a situation, it's more likely to come up with the intuitive response which is required. And if you listen to it and you're really tense or you're stressed or whatever, then you, you settle first before you actually act. Mm -hmm. Or if I get agitated by something in counselling and or I get angry, it's like I've just got to notice that that's occurring and let that settle before I come forward with anything. So it's being in that non-conceptual realm in sitting, it's being in the body and really being sensitive to the responses that your body is giving the mind um, will be the best way in which you go forward to then act compassionately in the world 
which is comes from that instinctual place, not from the place of ideal, which is a concept, or the place of duty solely, which is from that place. Joan Halifax uses this um, metaphor from Chinese Zen, which I'm not quite comfortable with, but I can see where she's coming from. She says that the Bodhisattva is like um, a wooden puppet, and the wooden puppet's limbs are, um, are pulled by the suffering in the world. So it, its movements are a simple, um, non-reflective, non-thought-out, just automatic response to dealing with suffering in the world, like moving the pillow in the night. So it's a wonderful metaphor in that sense, you know, in, the, in that it's just that automatic response without thinking to be drawn towards, you know, alleviating suffering. But the worry I have about it is that um, what's the distinction between that and codependency and enabling and just automatically doing things because of suffering in the world without any wisdom? So compassion always needs to be um, tempered by wisdom. You know, that there's the drawing, that the heart is drawn towards doing something, but what is the wise response? Sometimes the wise response is to do nothing, to not get pulled in, right, but to, to settle and to stand back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a great metaphor, but um, I'm just sharing my, my minor concerns with it. The approach of, to, just to, to finish, a note to finish on, is that Zen practice, as I understand and how it was taught to me, is what you could call an indirect approach to realisation. And that's not about setting a goal of enlightenment and trying to cultivate love directly or compassion directly or wisdom. It's indirect in that it's a practice which um, is not directly trying to cultivate those qualities, wonderful as they are. It's an approach which eliminates the obstacles to it and the roadblocks. So the roadblocks to all that are delusion and attachment. And if you recognise your own delusion and fixed beliefs of the world you get caught up in that are narrow and your own attachments and aversions to things, if you're super, super aware of that and you stay with it in a non-judgmental way, then eventually they, they dissolve, you know, they melt. Mm-hmm. And, and it's through that indirect approach that these wonderful kind of um, uh, feelings of compassion and wisdom and so on and generosity naturally come through. If you're trying to deliberately to cultivate them, then, this, then it becomes the ego trying to become enlightened. But if you take that indirect approach, just focus on the delusion, the attachment, be aware of it, it'll drop away and something naturally will come forth. And it'll be natural. Right? You, won't even, you won't even think that you're doing it. Right? You won't even expect any applause for it or a reward for it. Right? Although, having said that, you know, being, being compassionate does have its own intrinsic reward. We do feel better about ourselves when, we, when we're compassionate, when we, when we give. Mm-hmm. 
But that's not the point of it. It's coming from a deeper place than that. So Zen practice is about sitting um, and um, that's what the word sazen is, sitting meditation. That's what we do here, but of course it's how we bring that into the world becomes our larger practice. And in a word, it is a, it is a, it is a, a practice of service, right? um, not a practice of helping and not a practice of fixing. Thank you.